0: I'd just like to welcome all to LSE. Um, It's great to see so many of you here on this cold, autumnal evening. And this is um, the next um, discussion in the Consilience Series that I'm sure you're already familiar with, which is exploring topics broadly within the ethics of um, the cognitive sciences. And as I'm sure many of you know, it's a series where we draw different speakers um, who represent really different disciplines who are able to discuss and think about recent developments in the the cognitive sciences. So the general aim of the series is to raise awareness of these issues and to integrate knowledge of um, different areas of expertise and really thinking about how those interfaces can lead to questions um, and improve our understanding. So as you know, tonight's discussion is somewhat unusually called Children's Pathologies Um, I think that's a bit of an odd title. I'm sure many of you might as well. I mean, I really think of it as a topic, really, on child mental health and the issues to do with child mental health. So my name is Dr. Eamon McCrory, and I'm a co-director of the Developmental Risk and Resilience Unit at UCL. So I'm both a clinical psychologist as well as a neuroscience researcher. Um, And my particular research interest is in understanding how early adversity can get under the skin and really increase the risk of later mental health problems um, in children across adolescence and into adulthood. Um, So the issue of child mental health is one that affects um, all of us who have or look after children and is of course a concern for our whole society. So when does a child's emotional or psychological problem become a disorder? Currently within the NHS we follow diagnostic systems that provide definitions of disorder and which provide criteria for defining at what point a disorder um, can be said to exist. So today we're going to really be exploring some of the questions around this. So what is the value of diagnosis, for example? Is it scientifically informed? Are there political or social biases? What are the risks and difficulties in arriving at a diagnosis? And what is the the role of neuroscience in thinking about child mental health? We know, for example, that experiences of maltreatment can increase the risk of later mental health problems, um, but we know very little about why that might be. Can neuroscience help, or can neuroscience actually hinder our understanding of some of these questions? So we have three speakers tonight um, who will consider different aspects of this topic. Um, our first speaker will be Eileen Munro, who is a Professor of Social Policy here at the LSE. Um, Emily Simonov, who's a professor of child and adolescent psychiatry, and Rachel Cooper, senior lecturer at, at the Institute of Psychiatry, um, and Rachel Cooper, who is senior lecturer at Lancaster University, who focuses very much on the philosophy of science um, and in particular in relation to psychiatry. So most of you will be familiar with the structure. We'll have talks from each of the three speakers, some discussion here within the panel followed by, um, I hope, a a kind of an interactive and lively debate and questions from the audience, um, which I'll be sharing with the panel. So without further ado, I'd like to hand the microphone over to Eileen, who's going to to lead um, to begin our talks in relation to um, children's pathologies or child mental health. Right.
1: Right. Well, I'm going to talk very briefly about the way that neuroscience is appearing in the policy and practice discussions in relation to child maltreatment. Um, Neuroscientists have been studying what's been going on in the brain when a child is abused or neglected, and I have no intention of being critical of neuroscience in itself, but I am concerned about how it's being picked up by non-neuroscientists and is being used in discussions. Yes. Right, well... If children are abused physically or sexually um, in their childhood or if they are neglected either through physical neglect or or neglect of their psychological needs, we have got an absolute mountain of evidence from social science that this is bad for them. Uh, It has long-term consequences in all aspects of their development uh, and that as adults they can suffer problems. Not all of them. Some of them come through very resiliently but others do have serious problems in their physical and mental health or in their behaviour and their social achievements. So what does neuroscience add to that existing body of knowledge? Well, one of the things I keep coming across in the literature is people saying, well, now we know abuse is bad for children. And I find this highly irritating because I think we've already known that anyway. Uh, But there is something about the status of having evidence from the natural sciences to back up what we already know that people somehow think is a game changer and that this somehow makes it true in a way that all the psychologists and sociologists don't really um, come together to convince it, convince you. And so it's become very much um, visible in all the political debates Uh, Graham Allen, who did a review of um, providing help to families to make them more resilient and prevent them uh, harming their children, put a CT scan on the front cover of his report because um, that really captures the uh, attention and it makes it look as if this is really hard evidence that you have got to, uh, to follow. And it seems to me that it's got some echoes of what happened in the 1960s when Um, Kemp, an American uh, radiographer um, used x-rays of broken bones to convince society that children suffered physical abuse at the hands of their parents and the photos of the x-rays had a really powerful political impact and people are using MRI scans and CT scans in much the same way to try and convince conservative politicians that chronic neglect in childhood is bad for children Um, So one could see that it might have some practical value, but it is, to me, um, a very dubious use of what is still very much embryonic understanding. The other thing that's coming out in these debates is people's implicit assumptions about the relationship between the mind and the body become invisible because you keep hearing people saying with surprise that neglect actually causes damage in the brain. And you do wonder what they thought was happening in the brain when years and years of neglect showed up in the child's physical development and in their behaviour and in their mental state. You know, how they thought it might actually be having any causal impact on the child if it doesn't have a correlate in the mind Um, in the brain. Uh, And and so it it does seem that the Cartesian dualism is the sort of fallback, the, the default image in many people's minds about the relationship. And as a consequence, when they think that this is somehow a game changer, that there's a physical impact of neglect, some of them also then think of it as becoming a primary cause that then causes the psychological, rather than thinking that the two are different dimensions of the same process that they somehow think that the psychological becomes fluffier and less significant, um, that the the brain is where it's happening. And then that can lead to people thinking, well, if it's the brain causing those problems, then the child no longer has agency, they no longer have free will, they no longer have um, an ability to uh, control their lives in the way that we usually think of ourselves as having. And so um, you get... To me, a very scary image around the, um, the the way it changes their perception of the victim, uh, because they start to think of that person as being controlled by the by the uh, physical processes. The um, the impact that it has on people's reasoning skills is also shown up in. There's been some studies where which show how much people over interpret anything that comes from neuroscience. So um, there was one study in America where they asked 181 judges to uh, look at a vignette and, and, say, come up with a verdict and a sentence. And for half of them, they also they said they, the person had psychop- psychopathy. And for half of them, they told them about neuro- neurobiological mechanisms that contribute to the development of psychopathy. Um, and the other half didn't get that information. And when they were told something about neurobiology, they gave the prisoners um, sentences about half the length of the people who didn't get it. Uh, So quite a radical impact upon their interpretation of the significance of of it. The other worrying aspect that I am seeing as well is that it tends to lead to a degree of fatalism, that somehow if you've damaged the brain, that's it. Um, There's no way back. And so you will get um, people talking about we must intervene in children's lives very, very early, long before their parents have had a chance to maltreat them, in fact, because uh, um, once they've been harmed, you can't change it. I've put here in very small print, um, most of the documents will say in very small print that the brains can repair themselves, that they're plastic to a degree, but it is in the small print and never in the policy discussion that builds on it. Uh, And to me, one of the um, big dangers of this is of politicians emphasizing the importance of intervening early on in a child's life and underfunding the later therapeutic services, uh, which can actually reverse some of the damage that children have experienced. But it's also edging into being part of the argument for why we should coercively intervene in families that uh, look fairly vulnerable on paper, uh, people on low incomes, there's going to be more of them under current policy um, decisions in this country, uh, and that, um, that you, you can't afford to wait long. You should really be trying to intervene very fast, remove the child for good and have them adopted by a nice family that's got a bit more money and a nicer house and would encourage them to do their schoolwork. Um, and the, other, the final area that I'm concerned by is It is tending to be part of of, uh, discussions which focus on an individual child's development with some awareness of their family, but not of their wider social context. So all of the evidence about how poverty impacts upon brain development is not present in this um, policy debate. It is only around parental behavior, Um, and so there is a very selective choice. But it does lead to the... Undervaluing of the social context in which families are functioning and therefore over-responsibilizes uh, the parents, it seems to me, in terms of how children develop. So the final slide I have is, is just that I think neuroscience has got some really exciting possibilities. I don't want to, to knock it at all in terms of what it can contribute to our ability to help children. But it is clear that it, it is a new kind of... Knowledge and people are struggling to integrate it into the ways that they think about these problems. They are overly impressed uh, by it because it's got really clever diagrams and it's neuroscience and it's natural science and it's hard evidence. They don't understand it and it's clearly being used by people to strengthen the argument they wanted to make anyway. And so it may be that you think pragmatically it's very wise. I mean, I have said to people, if you ever want to get money out of uh, any organization, put a picture of an MRI scan on the first page of the application, uh, and it does seem to turn their brains to jelly. Um, But, you know, I am more concerned about the misuse of knowledge, that science, it may have a short-term gain, but it will come back to haunt you, really, if you uh, misuse it. But perhaps there will be different views in the audience here. But I will close there for the next.
0: Thanks very much, Ali. So next, I'd like to ask Emily.
2: And will you, will this move over for me? Excellent. Um, Great. I I found myself reflecting as um, I was groping for my pointer that maybe one of the other differences between a social scientist and a biological scientist is using a pointer when you give a talk. We are obviously our, our little props here. I'm going to move slightly direction to focus on the uses and abuses of diagnosis in child mental health services So I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist who both undertakes clinical work and research. And um, if I were to give my conflicts of interest, I would be saying that I use diagnosis in both contexts. In my clinical work, it's crucial to helping children. And in my research, it's um, also part and parcel of what we think about. And I'm going to... Um, really give more of a descriptive talk here and focus on four key domains. Why do we give diagnosis? How do we go about it? What for? What does it give us that we wouldn't have without psychiatric diagnosis? And what if? What if it goes wrong and what are the abuses? Okay. So... We give, why do we give diagnosis? For two reasons, really. We think about it at the individual or clinical level. When I see children in my clinic, I'm asking two questions. First of all, do they have a psychiatric or mental health disorder? Or is the behavior that we're seeing part of everyday normal variation Um, and parents and others who may be concerned should be encouraged not to be worried. So it's the, do they, is it the yes or no, a problem that needs help, that they need help with or not? And the second important element is what kind of disorder, if they have one, because um, that very much guides what we're going to do in terms of recommending treatments or interventions. At a population or research level, we're asking rather different questions. First of all, we want to know how many children have meant significant mental health problems because if we don't know that, we can't plan our services. We don't know how many services we need, with what kinds of professional staff, um, working with what age groups, and we won't be able to help children and their families. Secondly, in our research, we crucially need to know who's got a a problem or a diagnosis to be able to understand the causes. So we need to be able to classify people according to those who are doing well and those who have a disorder to look at what are the differences to identify disorders. So the how. How do we go about it? And one of the issues that I think really Eileen and others will allude to is that Emotions and behavior are the human condition. They're something we all experience by being human. And many of the behavior or emotional experiences that we think about as part of a psychiatric or mental health disorder can appear in the, the general population. And so I've drawn a normal distribution. All of us. We'll have had times when we experience low mood, even depressed mood, anxiety. I can assure you I'm feeling a little bit anxious up here um, talking to, to all of you, um, when we've been irritable or impulsive. And so how do we decide when these ordinary experiences of the human condition are part of a disorder? And the kinds of things we think about as clinicians are when we have those feelings or experience, how severe are they? Do, they? do they stop us in our tracks? Do I get so anxious before coming in here that I actually feel sick? Luckily not. Um, how often does it happen? Does it happen every single day or just once in a blue moon? When it does happen, how long does it last? Does it last for days on end or just for a few minutes? Does it affect everyday functioning? So does it mean in the case of a child who's feeling anxious, they're so worried they can't actually get to school? Or do they just feel a little bit nervous as they enter the classroom because they know they haven't done their homework and their teacher's going to tell them off? And finally, how does it affect other people? Um, And that particularly comes up when we're thinking about antisocial behavior and aggression. Are other people being hurt, harmed, upset by the child's behavior? And based on all of those criteria, we place on this distribution I've put here a rather arbitrary threshold. And we say that everyone who's above that has a mental health or psychiatric diagnosis. And all those below that don't have a diagnosis. And you can see it's incredibly arbitrary. But it's actually no more arbitrary than happens in any other area of medicine. So why do we decide that people who have blood pressure over 140 over 90 have hypertension and those whose blood pressure is 139 over 89 don't? It's equally arbitrary, and it's a problem of any biological system where we try to apply categories to continuous experiences. So that's how we're thinking in mental health services. What do we actually do well, the first point to, to make is that we don't see children who are coming to us. We're not out there on the streets looking for children who might be absconding from school, although I do find myself walking down the street and noticing the number of children in Woolworths who ought to be in school. I think this isn't half-term. Um, but we don't go a- in and, and look for children to um, identify mental health problems. Children come because... People are concerned, and one of the problems is that it's usually their parents or their teachers who are concerned, and we very often don't hear from the young people themselves about the difficult experiences they're having, so children often don't have agency to get um, get help when they perhaps need it. Once a child is Referred. we get an account from the parent and the child of their own experiences um, and what's happened previously and, and very much the account as I've described previously. And we also hear from other sources, and that would typically be um, the child's school, once, of course, the family and the, and the young person have given consent for us to contact them, and other um, other. Places where the child um, or young person spends time. And then we put this information together in aggregate to try to make sense of it and decide, as I've indicated, does the child have uh, a mental health problem and what kind of problem. And what you'll see is currently in what we're doing in our services, we're not using cognitive neuroscience. So we're not using... Um, neuroimaging or biomarkers, genetic tests to decide whether or not a child has um, a psychiatric diagnosis. It's based on what we observe. And of course, once we've made those decisions, we're doing two things. First of all, we're thinking, well, How does that help us to decide what kinds of interventions might be useful? But crucially, we're then having a dialogue with the family and the young person about the treatment options that are available, which ones we think are likely to be effective, and which ones would they prefer. So... Um, we had a look at that normal distribution and those arbitrary thresholds, and because you can put that threshold anywhere you like, you can actually come up with any rate of psychiatric diagnosis or pathology amongst children. But most of the studies end up coming out around 10% of children who have symptoms in the way that I've described that impinge on their everyday life or that of the people who are close to them. And what we know in the UK is that of that 10% of children, only a quarter of them are actually receiving uh, mental health services. So currently... For those of us trying to deliver services, the dilemma is much more about how do we reach the other three quarters rather than how many children are we mislabeling? And you may come back and tell me we need to be concerned about the mislabeling as well. But I'm concerned about the fact that our services are being significantly cut up to a third of... um, of the money going into child mental health services has been cut in the last couple of years and what's that going to mean both for the number of children that we can see and those for whom we can give interventions. Okay. I think it's pertinent to note, and and Eileen really touched on this, that... Mental health disorders are multifactorial in their origins. So children have mental health disorders because of a combination of risk factors. And there are lots of ways of conceptualizing these, but I've broadly conceptualized these as personal or child-based characteristics, which are often about their biology or their genetic makeup, if they were born prematurely or they have genetic um, differences. Um, family experiences in the way that Eileen described very much in her talk um, about positive promoting parents versus negative um, or actually abusing parents. And then, again, as Eileen described, the wider social environment, things like poverty, but also experiences at school. And in almost every kind of mental health disorder, all three are at play, but there is variation, and that's important. So broadly speaking, we would say that childhood autism is much more biologically driven. ADHD is, is both biologically, uh, uh, but also other features, other risk factors are important, whereas as elements or disorders like anxiety and antisocial behavior are much more um, Uh, driven by environmental and family factors. So there's variation between different disorders, but the take-home message is that they're all multifactorial in their origins. Now, if we think about the, the what for, what, you know, how is diagnosis going to help us other than individuating those children? Well, one of the crucial elements is in telling us what kind of treatments because the evidence that we have in relation to you know, what treatments are effective and for what kinds of problems is based on studies that use these problematic categories of diagnosis. And if we take away diagnosis at the moment, we won't know what kinds of treatments to use. And there are very real differences and important differences. And so I've given just three examples where we're very clear that the most effective treatment for significant ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity is stimulant medication, whereas for obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, cognitive behavior therapy would be the treatment of choice, And for eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, we would be thinking about family therapy. So very different choices depending upon what what diagnosis you've made. Also, access to a whole range of other services that young people and families value can often only be made once a diagnosis is is present. For example, children can't get into a school for autism unless they have a diagnosis of an autism uh, spectrum disorder. And finally, diagnosis can help us with planning for the future. What's is the child? Is this a problem that's going to go away or is it going to persist? What kinds of problems will come up in the future? Um, what how how should we be planning for early interventions, both for this child and for other children? And finally, I want to turn to the what if. What if it all goes wrong, and all these best intentions that I've been describing. Um, uh, don't come to pass. What are the what are the abuses of um, psychiatric um, diagnosis? And I'm actually going to start from the bottom up, and because one of the key um, areas that I think people are most concerned about is that psychiatric diagnosis is a label and it can be a stigmatizing label. What I hope I've got across is that when children get to us in clinical services, they have a label already. Um, so they're the problem in the classroom, they're the child that other children don't want to play with, they're the one that isn't socializing with other children. But a psychiatric label may be more problematic and it may be deeply problematic and actually unethical if it wasn't correctly applied, if we've got the wrong threshold or we've made the wrong diagnosis. If I then go up to the top, it is it's moving to this idea that um, getting the wrong diagnosis is hugely problematic. So it may delay the right kind of intervention. And in my clinical practice, I see um, young people at the age of 17, 18, who have very clear-cut ADHD, but because um, they've been in an adoption, um, someone assumed that their difficulties were due to their early experience and ignored the fact that there was an underlying um, problem and gave a different kind of intervention that wasn't effective. Getting the wrong diagnosis can delay treatment, and that's a real concern for us with services being cut, that um, the cheap and cheerful uh, assessments will lead to in- more inaccurate diagnoses. And finally, inappropriate um, advice or understanding of diagnosis can lead to guilt or blame um, that's really misplaced. So we looked at the fact that some disorders. Uh, perhaps have a greater role of family or environmental influences. And it's very easy for families to feel blamed for their child's um, problems when, in fact, we've seen that the origins are multifactorial and um, blame is not going to help their child. I'm going to stop there.
0: Thanks. Thanks.
3: Hey, uh, well thank you very much. Um, So today I'm going to be talking a little bit about the ways in which some of the criteria that are used to diagnose children uh, with mental disorders have changed quite recently. Um, And in particular I'm going to be talking about some changes uh, that have been made to the DSM, which is one of the main classifications that is used um, to, to draw the thresholds of different disorders. So the DSM is a book, a big book published by the American Psychiatric Association. What it's got in it is it's got lists of the symptoms that somebody has to have in order for them to receive a particular diagnosis. Um, And a new edition came out earlier this year. Uh, When the DSM is revised, it's a big deal. So the way it's revised is that there are committees, literally hundreds of experts working for years, and they're reviewing the empirical evidence that's accumulated since the previous edition of the DSM was published. So they might, for example, find evidence that a condition that's currently considered to be one unified disorder might be better split into two or maybe three disorders. So there's experts reviewing um, the evidence. There's also uh, various groups who will lobby the American Psychiatric Association to get the classification revised one way or another. Um, So the DSM uh, makes a difference to lots of people, so various patient groups will lobby to have it changed one way or the other, groups of mental health professionals will lobby to get it changed one way or the other, and also uh, various industries like the pharmaceutical industry will have an interest in how the DSM gets revised. So I'm going to be today focusing in on two particular uh, types of condition that have been revised recently, talking about the kind of factors that played a role in those revisions being made, uh, to think about how the classifications are shaped and how that might lead us to think about psychiatric diagnosis. Um, So the DSM is uh, an American classification, but it ends up making a difference here. So in the UK, Uh, There's a classification called the ICD, which is published by the World Health Organization, and that gets used for official statistics and things like that. But what's happened over the last few decades is that these two classifications have come closer and closer together. Oops. Um, So the ICD is being revised over the next few years, and people expect it to largely follow the lead that's been taken in the DSM. So it's likely that changes that have been made to the DSM recently will end up being made also into the ICD and being used in the UK as well. So uh, the first change that I want to talk about is changes that have been made to the categories for autism and Asperger's disorder. So the dsm 4 was the old edition of the classification system and in there these were two distinct categories. And what's happened is that they've been merged together into something that's now called autism spectrum disorder. And the reason why this change was made was partly that there were some studies that suggested that the dsm 4 criteria weren't being very reliably applied. So there were studies that showed that which diagnosis you got depended more on which clinic you went to than on your symptoms. So some clinics liked diagnosing Asperger's disorder and saw a lot of that. Other clinics liked diagnosing autism and, and diagnosed that a lot. And then also it's always been the case that there have been researchers who've doubted that the two conditions uh, are that distinct. So they decided to merge them together, and what happened when they merged the criteria together is that the criteria were changed in lots of little ways. So some of the different, some of the symptoms were changed um, that you had to tick off the list, but also the wording of the age at which you had to manifest symptoms changed. Lots of little changes, and this, uh, these were posted on the web. So the DSM revision process took years and years and years. And at various points, uh, proposed revisions were posted up on the web for, for people to see and comment on. And this led to a debate. And the debate was over whether all of those who had a diagnosis of autism or Asperger's disorder under dsm 4 whether or not they'd all have a diagnosis under dsm 5 And the worry was that there might be some people who would end up losing uh, their diagnosis. And the reason why uh, this is a big deal is that uh, quite often the the types of therapy, or in this case special educational services that a child might receive, depends on them having a particular diagnosis. So that means that if a kid had a diagnosis under DSM-IV, but with the revisions they ended up losing that diagnosis, they might end up losing various uh, services um, that they'd they'd had before. And so this led to massive protests um, from various autism support groups, who uh, were were worried about people potentially losing their diagnosis. And then when the DSM-5 was eventually published, the new criteria had a note at the bottom, which uh, says that individuals with a well-established DSM-4 diagnosis of Asperger's disorder should be given the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. So here you've got this note added in response to protests, in response to people who had concerns that they might not have a DSM-5 diagnosis. So what can we see here? Well, what we've got here is we've got a case where empirical studies play a role in informing the revisions that are made, but where it's also the case that lobbying and political considerations play a role. And also we can see that even what might look like quite small changes to the criteria can potentially make a really big difference to people, because if you change the criteria even a little bit, like even if you say you're going to want, I know, five symptoms instead of six, something like that, then a whole load of people who might be diagnosed under one system won't be in the new system, and then that means that uh, they're not going to be eligible for various services and, and therapies and so on. Okay, so that's the first case. Now for the second one. So the second case is a new disorder called disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. Um, It's a a diagnosis that is going to be used for children, children who have problems with temper outbursts and are irritable in between those. And you've got here, this is a summary of the criteria, which go on longer than this. But it's not just any kid who gets angry. There's various restrictions um, on how much they've got to do it um, and how long it's got to cause problems for and so on. Uh, Now, the background to this is that in the United States, bipolar disorder, uh, which is roughly what used to be called manic depression, has been diagnosed more and more in children. And traditionally, uh, most people thought that manic depression or bipolar disorder wasn't something you'd expect to see in children. But what's happened in the United States is there have been some researchers who over the last few decades have argued that children do suffer from this condition but that they manifest the condition slightly differently. So the symptoms are thought to be slightly different, so they might have uh, irritability instead of kind of classic mania, and their moods might shift more quickly. And so against this background, more and more diagnoses of bipolar disorder in children have been made in the United States. And this is very controversial. It's very controversial largely because quite often but not always, children who have this diagnosis end up being treated with antipsychotics. And antipsychotics are powerful drugs that can have quite nasty side effects. And it's also controversial because quite a lot of the work uh, by the researchers who think that bipolar disorder ought to be diagnosed more has been sponsored by drug companies who sell the drugs. So, for example, Joseph Biederman is a big name who argues that children can suffer from bipolar disorder. And he works at the Johnson & Johnson Center for Paediatric Psychopathology Research, uh, which is sponsored by Johnson & Johnson, who are the people who make the drugs. Uh, So that was in the background. Now when DSM-5 was under revision, there were people who suggested that there ought to be a new category uh, that could be used for diagnosing uh, people, which were children more easily with bipolar disorder. But that proposal was rejected And instead, this new disorder, Disruptive Mood Dysregulation Disorder, was inserted. And the idea is that this is going to be a better label for those children who are currently being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And the committees hope that this is going to encourage research into uh, finding a therapy that might be more appropriate for these children than the antipsychotics that are currently um, sometimes being used. So here again, we've got a case where the committees revising the manual aren't just considering the empirical evidence, but they're considering policy implications and treatment implications as well. Okay, so conclusions. So, quite often you will hear two conflicting stories about psychiatric diagnostic criteria, and which story you hear depends which which people you hang out with. So one story is that it's kind of science all the way, and that diagnostic criteria are determined solely on the basis of scientific evidence. And then if you hang out with different groups of people, you might have a different story, uh, which comes in various flavours, but one flavour would have it that organised psychiatry is in the pay of drug companies and constructs diagnostic criteria to maximise profits. And I want to suggest that neither story is true, (laughs) but rather what happens is that empirical evidence informs but doesn't determine Uh, diagnostic criteria. Various bureaucratic, ethical and political factors also play a role. And then you end up in a situation where whether or not someone receives a diagnosis and the diagnosis they receive can make a huge impact on their life, um, but ends up depending on highly contingent factors. Because when something like the DSM is being revised there are debates that could easily go either way. <laughs> and depending on how they get resolved, it makes a difference to, to who ends up um, being diagnosed. Um, and that's it. OK. okay
0: thank, you, thank you, Rachel. So, the format, as I'm sure many of you um, are familiar with, is that we have a little bit of discussion, first of all, in the panel and then invite you to um, ask questions of the, of the panellists. Um, and there are clearly three different threads here being presented, all related to child mental health, and I just had a few questions maybe to start us off. Um, I wonder if I could start with you, Aline. Mm-hmm. So you really have expertise in social policy, and I've had many years dealing with politicians and policy makers. And I think you've highlighted a difficulty about how neuroscience might be misused and is being misused in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, given your expertise, and as a neuroscientist who doesn't really want his research to be discounted or misused, what is your sense of how we can educate or change how evidence Mm -hmm. is thought about at the policy level? Or is that something which... We can influence in a, in a genuine way.
1: I, I've got a feeling you might be asking, how could you make politicians behave rationally?
0: <laughs> That's why I put the caveat at the end. Do you think this is possible?
1: I think one has to try, and, and it is about educating, about about trying to surface some of these um, hidden parts of what they're saying, um, and make them perhaps reappraise it. But but. The, the dangers, I think, are where the neuroscience is being in use that is just to help people make the argument they wanted to make anyway. Uh, so they're not really interested in using it more appropriately uh, because it might threaten their line of argument. Uh, that sounds a bit cynical, um, but I'm, I'm not generally cynical. I, I just, I find it, I suppose it is, I, I just find it amazing and so irritating that people are now beginning to think that neglect is a bad thing. And why haven't they thought that all along? But perhaps the others have got more optimism about being able to communicate it well.
0: <laughs> and who do you think is best placed to shift thinking? I mean, is it the well, scientists who should I be think it,
1: it's the scientists, because I would have thought that, that there is some temptation amongst neuroscientists to play along because they can get research funding. I mean, it's such a popular topic at the moment. Uh, but but if, if they were to be giving a slightly corrective... Um, they can't control all that happens, but they could be saying, look, we did this on a tiny sample, uh, so you shouldn't generalise from it. Or we only did it at one point in time and we haven't been able to follow up to see whether five years later the effect is still visible. Um, that would be good. If so if there was a steady sort of drip-drip of a more realistic account.
0: So in a way there's a need for neuroscientists to stand up to the plate in a way and proactively mm. engage and yeah. not simply publish and stand back.
1: yeah. That's right, of, of actually trying to correct the mm-hmm. misinterpretations I've seen. Mm-hmm.
0: And I wonder, Emily, if I could turn to you. And so Eileen has raised some questions about, in some ways, the risks or misuse of neuroscience evidence. And I'm wondering, um, from a Charles psychiatry point of view, have you any sense of what neuroscience might add to our understanding? Is there potential for neuroscience to shed light on things that we didn't? Otherwise, no. I mean, is it more than just showing correlates in the brain of what we knew already?
2: So I, I think that that's um, a really important question. It's an area that many of us spend a lot of time thinking about and researching. And, and I guess the aims are twofold. One is that if we can identify something between um, the, uh, the, the very distal risk factors like our genes or a bad, you know, a, a life event um, and the subsequent behavior, then maybe we can get closer to the, uh, an intervention that's going to be more effective. So interventions in mental health, um, like every other area, are only partially effective. And if we get closer to the underlying um, uh, pathology or, or abnormality, and of course these are variations rather than abnormality, but something that changes, maybe we could have a more effective treatment. That's one element. Another element is around um, personalized intervention. So if we think about areas like cancer care, treatment is, in some areas has really changed over the last few years. If a, if a woman's diagnosed with breast cancer, they send off Um, a slide of the tumor and and analyze it for all sorts of receptors, and you get an individualized treatment package based on what we know is best for your kind of cancer. ADHD, anxiety, autism, they're rag-bag diagnoses at the moment that are, are broad observations of behaviors. If we could say, well, this kind of ADHD is associated with problems in inhibition, um, and this kind of treatment works for problems in inhibition, we could get much better at um, delivering both effective interventions but also personalized ones and possibly ones with fewer side effects. So it's a very pertinent issue.
0: So it sounds like you've got some optimism that neuroscience can shed some light on mechanisms that we previously didn't understand. And in a way, you're also suggesting that it might help refine our understanding of where we carve different diagnostic categories or even within categories?
2: Yes, within categories, so to personalize our approach um, to um, individual difficulties.
0: And how, how far do you think we are from something like that, given our current... You know, we, are, we still are at somewhat an embryonic stage of thinking about the role of neuroscience. How far is it down the line before we might have a way to use neuroscience to improve our understanding of these categories?
2: Um, I, well, it's always hard to, to know how. So some things change very quickly. But the kinds of thing that I think we, we talked about beforehand that's important to consider is that when we describe differences, say, in children who have been maltreated, in their brains, that's a difference at a group level. And it may not tell us about any one individual child. When you do the studies to look at what predicts from the difference between one individual and another, we're actually still really pretty poor at that. So we're we're, um, pretty far, I think, away from knowing how to apply things at a very personal or individual level.
0: And Rachel, I was wondering, Two questions, really. I mean, one, does DSM look at the neuroscience evidence in any way? Does that inform how these diagnostic categories are being carved up? You you mentioned that they draw on a wide um, scientific literature. So how much is neuroscience informing that debate? Um, At the moment, I don't think an awful
3: lot. Um, so I mean, the, the kind of evidence that they look at will be um, like things like family studies, mm-hmm. um, things like differences in like the natural history of um, of different subgroups uh, who, who get a particular diagnosis. Um, um, I mean, now and again, kind of neuroimaging mm-hmm. studies get referred to, mm-hmm. um, so but even amongst other stuff. The, yeah. So it's
0: very interesting that we've yeah. got neurosciences disproportionately influencing one group of people, who probably shouldn't be so interested in it. And then we have a very um, little influence, it sounds like, um, of the emerging knowledge of neuroscience influencing. I mean, do you think that there's a role for neuroscience? Do you think that's an omission? Or do you think that's an appropriate position, given how early we are in the field Mm. of neuroscience? I mean,
3: I guess I think... So I I can be easily seduced by, you know, pretty pictures and so on. Um, I guess I think that even if biomarkers for various types of disorder are found, then that's still not going to solve lots of questions about where the thresholds between, you know, a disorder and normality ought to be drawn. Like, we'd end up in the same kind of situation as we are currently with blood pressure and obesity, things like that. So, like, with blood pressure, you know, like, you can measure it, um, uh, but there's still, still question marks over, over where you're going to uh, want to consider the, the boundary between normality and disorder to be. So even if um, neuroscience makes great progress, um, although that might help you to understand uh, where, there, where there are differences in, in amongst people, uh, it's still not going to tell you where the, the boundary between normality and disorder ought to be set.
0: And in a way, that very nicely leads to my next question, which is, I mean, even in my reasonably short clinical career, we've seen DSM change over time, and we've seen new disorders suddenly emerge, so children can suddenly become now diagnosed and medicated. As as someone who's so familiar with both the history of DSM as well as its kind of current state, I mean, how confident are you that what we have there really carves Nature as its joints in, in a meaningful way? Or do you think that there are such social pressures, political pressures, economic pressures from the pharmaceutical industries that we don't have something which is actually valid? It's just a, a social construction that in 10 years' time a disorder may exist that doesn't exist now and other disorders suddenly disappear. I mean, how much confidence do you think we can have in what we've got? work on?
3: That's a difficult question. <laughs> so I guess two points. One is that I think that there might well be alternative class ways of classifying um, types of mental disorder, types of types of different psychological condition that might be at least as good as the DSM for different types of research questions. So there's a new project, um, there's people developing something called RDOC, which is going to be a classification for researchers. Uh, which is going to employ categories quite unlike the ones um, in the DSM. Um, uh, I I guess I think that quite often multiple different classifications can be useful for different types of research, different types of problem. And so uh, even if the DSM is quite a good classification, there might well be other types of classification that would be good as well.
0: That's a very diplomatic answer, I think. No, no, Um, I think that, but also
3: as to whether it's just a social construction. Yeah. Um, so I've, been, I've visited the archives of the American Psychiatric Association a couple of times, um, and they let me go through uh, all their committee minutes. And certainly, so, so GSM-5 you can't look at yet, because yeah, that's all, all just been done. Uh, but the previous classification, it's like their boxes of stuff are very impressive. It's like they really do try hard. Um, (laughs) like they're reading a lot of stuff discussing with lots of people Um, and and empirical evidence does play a role in there but I think always you end up with this question as to where the threshold ought to be um, as to how many symptoms someone's going to have to have as to what the age limit's going to be this kind of thing Um, and those kind of decisions I think are quite appropriately appropriately Mm -hmm. affected by considerations as to whether people are going to be harmed or, or benefited from
0: from it being
1: diagnosed yeah. oh, Well I think there's also quite a lot of difference in, um, within the diagnosis in terms of how much they're socially constructed and how much there's a, a more um, biological or, or physical part of it because yeah. homosexuality was in the DSM until only a few years ago uh, and, and disappears from it um, and it's difficult to see that as anything but a social construction
3: both ways <laughs> um, Yeah, I mean, there's, I think, in a way, there's two there's two types of issue. So one is uh, whether you want to consider a condition to be a disorder at all or not. And their homosexuality, uh, in the early 70s, uh, they decided that it wasn't so bad to be a homosexual after all. Um, and uh, and there, was, there was actually a vote uh, where, which got it out of the classification. Um, um, uh, but then you, so there you, ha, there you have a condition that at one time is thought of as being a, a disorder and then comes to be seen as, as being normal. So there's that kind of shiftiness. Mm. Um, but then there's also kind of questions about how these conditions are kind of carved up at all um, uh, um, and, and what that gets based on. But I think you're right, like that, that with, all, with the different conditions, they've got very different histories and mm. some of them are, are likely to. To still be there in you know, 100 years' time, and some are mm-hmm. likely to go well before
2: then.
0: And Emily, as someone engaged in kind of frontline practice with young people, how, how good do you, how fit for purpose do you think the current diagnostic system is in, in kind of really identifying those kids who need our help?
2: Well, they're, they're easy to apply. The question is whether you apply them correctly. So I, I would actually, I was reflecting in this last bit of discussion when Rachel was talking about the changes in, in autism and autism spectrum disorder, which I'm well acquainted with. What I'd, I'd really like to know what the audience would do. We um, saw a girl several, well, we've seen her over several years, but... Um, who, who's having enormous difficulties at school fitting in, um, and she clearly has ADHD, but she also has autistic traits. Now, we've done every research assessment um, twice, and she falls just below the threshold very clearly, just below the threshold, but she's a girl. And we think that um, girls may have milder autism and it may be harder for them to fit into a school setting. So should we have sort of ignored our assessment and written what her parents would have liked us to have done, um, although they were very understanding about why we didn't, is to say, yes, she has autism, because that would have allowed her to go to to access a school for people with autism, which probably would suit her much better than where she is now. So I'd be really interested in whether people think I should fudge it and um and just say, Yes, she has autism, or I should play it down the line and say, Well, I'm really sorry, you know, she doesn't fit criteria, but I'm happy to write lots of letters saying she has autistic traits and might be best served in a school for young people with autism.
0: So this is quite radical really this is diagnosed by voting, <laughs> um, which is possibly another another way forward. But I think it's a good opportunity to open up questions to the audience related to that issue or or other issues. So I think that there's a microphone going around. Maybe um, first question here, this lady in the middle.
4: Hi, yes, thank you for talking today. Um, I have a question for Emily, and I guess maybe this could help your um, diagnosis. Um, I'm just wondering, you were talking about doing different assessments with... um, Clients, yeah, I guess now people are called clients instead of patients. Um, And I'm just wondering when the medications are actually given to children. I know there have been numerous, numerous studies in regards to nutrition, wheat, sugar, dairy, um, schooling, parents, weather, climate, mold, household chemicals, art, music, therapies... (laughs) Um, I'm sort of somebody who's a believer in holistic health, and I'm just wondering, in terms of psychiatry, um, when do those do those factors actually play into how you diagnose a child, and do you actually advocate that the parents, the family, the school, the environment is tested and changed to maybe maybe adapt quicker to the child? or to to help the child and to then assess and reassess the conditions in which the child is living. Um, I just really believe that, and that this is also my area of research that I have done, um, that this is more helpful than immediately going to a diagnosis and looking at the various drugs that could treat the child's quote unquote condition. Um, so, I know that's kind of a handful, but. Yeah, maybe if you could give me um, some of your insight, that would be um, really helpful.
0: Great. Emma, Emma. Okay,
4: so let me pick off, I think, probably two different aspects of
2: that that I think you're, you're um, alluding to. The first one is you know, when should we be describing children's emotions and behaviours as a reasonable response to their personal situation. Um, and, and there are many examples where we think that that's the case. A child who's very distressed in a terrible situation, and it comes back to what Arlene was saying about maltreatment and the impact on children. But it doesn't, necessarily, it doesn't have to be maltreatment. It can be in a school situation where um, People don't understand their particular intellectual difficulties and therefore the unreasonable demands are being made on them which lead to behavior problems. It can be in the context of you know, ongoing bullying at school or at home that leads a child to avoid school. When should we give them a diagnosis and when should we say this is understandable in their current um, Situation, And I think that that is one of the issues that we commonly deal with. And there is a real tension there, and it does come back to the, the case that um, I discussed, which is that sometimes there's an advantage to giving a child a diagnostic level, which is that we can then go to bat for them in different sorts of ways. And, we, and, and it's a bit going back to Eileen's point of, well, if you label it, then you can, you can do something about it. So if we say, look, this is so bad that you're, this, you know, this bullying at school is so bad that the child's anxious and depressed, it may have more meaning than just saying bullying is bad. Uh, so it's a tension there. The other issue I think that you were um, perhaps alluding to is when should we think about... Um, treatments other than medication, and that is really important. I hope that my slide, in relation to the kinds of interventions, indicated that we use a whole host of interventions. Um, So I wonder,
0: Emily, if you could just clarify for us how often medication is used um, across the different disorders?
2: uh, Well, so it will be enormously variable, but um, the evidence for ADHD um, which is a common disorder is that medication is the most effective intervention, and a recent um, review of the evidence suggests that um, that the the non-pharmacological approaches are clearly poor in treating ADHD. Maybe not some of the co-occurring problems, but it, but disorders like anxiety. Um, Psychological intervention would be the first port of call. With oppositional behavior in younger children, a parent-based intervention would be the most common treatment to be offered. In eating disorders, a family-based therapy would be the most common. So it really is um, the minority still of disorders where medication is the first line of treatment.
0: Another question? Um,
2: I think this gentleman at the bank and his hand up. Hi.
5: Uh, thanks very much for the talk. It was massively interesting. Uh, just wondered about your thoughts whether that on uh, whether there could be uh, more of a role for schools and teachers uh, to sort of assess children and young people's mental health in terms of getting appropriate help for those who might need it. So, could greater mental health awareness training be a way for getting young people the help they need or could it just flag up lots of red herrings for you know kids just being kids frankly
0: So I wonder whether you might comment on that especially given that we often miss some in some serious case reviews we see kids who are experiencing early difficulties and I mean school is yeah. one place where that might be spotted. Well certainly
1: uh, schools do play a very big part in Recognizing that a child is changing in their behavior in, in a way that is raising concern. And you know, from my area of, of uh, work, I am aware that they will then, with certain ways of misbehaving, that it will cross their mind is this because of problems at home? Uh, and then when you talk to the child, they may well reveal to the teacher uh, the nature of the kind of problems that there is um, violence or um, serious difficulties at home. So they do already play a very big part in detecting children's problems that are due to maltreatment. But I think uh, you're suggesting an even broader one. I I think there's an... I haven't seen some immediate attractions in it, but I also have a concern about allowing too many people with very limited skill to make life-changing diagnoses of children because it does have a huge impact. And the tendency is, if you think of it as being a problem in the child, it, it, it does get overlocated in the child, even though you, you are aware of it being a result of environment and family factors. I think there's, there's too much of a risk of um, other people actually just saying this is the child who's got a problem and, and then actually trying to treat the child's bad behaviour without stopping the dad from beating them up every Friday night.
0: I didn't. Mean, in my paper, the first line I've got is disorder located in the child, <laughs> question more because that's, that's something which I think was really related to the first question that we had, is that you know children live in a context, Ali mean, mm-hmm. mentioned poverty, they're embedded within a family, within a community, within a society, and is there something of a risk of, of pathologizing children and saying they have the problem, um, and does that distract our attention in some ways from the wider influences that may be? Um, leading to those difficulties. Mm-hmm. Any other questions?
5: Thanks. Hi there. I'm, I'm not an academic. I'm a, I manage a child protection social work team in, in London. I thought it was a very interesting um, set, set of uh, talks and, and what I and you were saying about neuroscience is absolutely right. Quite a lot of people who make their living from, I think, often quite poor quality uh, LSCB-sponsored social work training will often have a few neuroscience diagrams chucked in there now, particularly in discussions of child neglect, in a way that's kind of unhelpful and doesn't often bear up to much scrutiny. And I think with discussions about um, diagnosis, I think if you work in multi-agency settings, some of the most contentious issues between services, um, kind of cases where there's a level of risk, are often about diagnosis, categories, service provision, and I think those are quite interesting fault lines between professionals. but the question I really wanted to ask is something that I think is quite comparable to the talk about the DSM, is that in, in the whole kind of governance and oversight of child protection work, there's a lot of attention played to national indicators, both locally and nationally by the government, of statistics that I don't in themselves think have very much meaning. So local authorities might receive a lot of praise for a drop in their looked-after children's population, or... Um, a drop in the number of children, perhaps who have child protection plans per 10,000. But in itself, that doesn't mean very much at all. And I think, you know, I'm not a statistician, but you don't re- it's pretty obvious that actually you, you'll evaluate the success of that five or 10 years hence to see if those children who have grown up out some- with, with their family lives and support who have had better outcomes than otherwise not. And yet that seems to have been writ large into government policy. And of course, for the biggest Type of sort of research, so-called research, I think that certainly in a public domain, are serious case reviews, which clearly relate to one child, where there's inevitably sort of one tragic outcome, and yet they're put on a pedestal by policymakers, governments, and actually quite a lot of high-profile voluntary sector organisations, as this is kind of peer-reviewed science, and but it's not, and I think that data is quite
0: problematic. So that's I think a comment. Really, I don't know if there's anyone who wants to.
1: No, I, I, I agree with his point on the indicators, because all of the indicators can be reached by a good practice and by absolutely appalling practice. Uh, you can have a big drop in the number of children you remove from your families just by being reckless and leaving them in, in dangerous settings. Uh, but I, I think um, what you're describing also, is it, it's a, an element of how people try to have the appearance of dealing with hard data um, and all of the kind of status and uh, that goes with that. So they don't pay too much attention to the fact that the hard data doesn't measure what you're interested in, but then ends up being a very distorting influence on the priorities.
0: Another question? Yeah.
5: Thank you. My question
1: concerns treatment. Uh, I was just thinking that uh, with the financial restraints now on the NHS, is the panel concerned at all that there is Uh, a lot of emphasis on the cheaper CBT route uh, because there was mention of longer term therapies on one of the slides but I wonder if that is just frankly too expensive and also thinking of neuroscience it may not be ready yet anyway but uh, with the application of neuroscience would that certainly be too expensive for individuals.
2: Should I start with that? Um, I, I'm personally quite worried about very short-term, short-sighted cuts. Um, I was uh, the child I'm consulting on to another service. He's got, he's got very complex problems, uh, which include, well, he's, he would fit very much into Eileen's description. But um, one of the difficulties he has is, is um, he can't swallow tablets, and he's got a very coercive cycle with his mother uh, who tries to make him swallow tablets Uh, and I suggested that he have a liquid preparation and I'm told that the local pharmacy won't allow that to be prescribed because it costs too much. Uh, This is a generic medication and actually this this is a boy who is out of school um, and um, is receiving about six different services so it's a very very short-sighted uh, view CBT is not necessarily less expensive. it will be less expensive if it 's delivered by people without the expertise to do it well, and which is one of the government 's um, suggestions about people who are who have a um, BSC in psychology being um, able to deliver interventions and that may well be appropriate in some contexts, but there is a concern that um, the standards will slip and um, that the, the quality or effectiveness of, of treatments will um, be reduced as a result of that.
0: I think we had another question just next. To the lady. What
3: happens to everyone that slips through sorry, the net? Sorry, could you just... Sorry. What happens to everyone that slips through the net, all the people that don't quite make the boundary, what happens to them? Because... They're one kind of, say, one point under these people who would get treatment. So are they just left to deal with it? or how does
0: I mean, I think that's quite a, a good question, given that from what Emily said, that even if you do get the diagnosis, you know, only a quarter of those individuals get treatment. But I think you're suggesting that there's a, another group of sub threshold individuals with real problems who don't meet treatment criteria, so don't get a service within the NHS.
1: I don't have an answer on that. I was just wondering what it means in terms of how people conceptualise their problems and whether there's um, some benefits to being given a label that somehow makes it not just down to your willfulness and your choice. Um, but I don't know the answer. I just, but I, I'm sure that the experience of that group that are just below the threshold will end up being radically different. And whether that's to the good or bad, I don't know.
0: But I wonder if services are set up in ways that you don't get into the specialist school without that diagnosis or you don't get special educational provision. Mm.
1: Mm. Well, I'm aware that with children's services, the um, cuts in the children's mental health services means that you have more and more disturbed children not being able Mm. to access help or not being able to get help at the point where it's just begun and where changing it might be easier. Actually, two years later.
2: I mean, I think that's very true. We have the first crisis in inpatient beds for children and adolescents across the UK um, that we've had in the last decade now since the cuts started two years ago. Uh, and, you know, and, and we don't know that it's causal, but it is an interesting. Um, Uh, temporal association, and so now we might have, if we have to admit a severely ill um, young person, they might have to go to Manchester, for example, because that's the only bed. Um, Just return to the other issue that I I think you were alluding to, Eileen, that I think is really interesting, is not all diagnoses are created equal. So if you've got um, a five-year-old who's Behavior is very difficult and they have imagine they've got temper tantrums when you go to the go to the supermarket and they you know they want the six six boxes of is fruit loops. Is there any other kind of <laughs> <laughs> well, you loops? Know, if you don't get the six box of Fruit Loops, they lie on the floor kicking and screaming and every other um, adult is walking past tiss tissing and you know, oh, bad parents on so forth. Parents Think it's you know if they if their child has a diagnosis of autism they feel quite happy to turn to other people and say I'm really sorry he can't help it because he has autism. If their child has a, a, a diagnosis of an antisocial disorder like oppositional disorder, they don't feel the same. It doesn't it doesn't feel as though this is an excuse that or or a reason that is acceptable socially to explain to other people. And that is quite important in terms of these issues around labeling and stigma for us to be aware of. Yeah.
0: Any other questions? Just The microphone's I live just coming. In a
6: community where there are a great number of children. And, uh, Sorry, could you
0: just start again?
6: I live in a community where there are a great number of children. Um, it's... Basically squats uh, or somehow legalized squats with plenty of children for the last 30 years. So I've seen this generational uh, um, recategorization uh, of which uh, there is uh, which has been mentioned in practice. And uh, uh, of course, I have also seen. Um, results of uh, interventions. For instance, one of the boys who I I always thought, that that is uh, about 18 years ago, uh, he was uh, removed out of this context. Uh, I thought he was quite intelligent, but he had God knows what uh, disorder, and he was put into a boarding school. Now, When he was, however, uh, coming home, I don't know, once a month for the weekend, and he brought the knowledge which he had acquired in these boarding schools back into this circle of great amount of friends, and especially he brought knowledge of particular uh, visual uh, contributions uh, which the surrounding culture, which is not parents, which is not really political uh, and not uh, DNA uh, based uh, influence. That means quite simply he brought the results of semiotic contributions to our uh, society in form of American uh, children programs, very particular ones. And uh, this crowd of uh, other children started looking at these programs Now, 20 years later, I see the result because he somehow seems to have not particularly improved, but he is still very intelligent, whilst the rest uh, of these uh, people who 20 years ago were, you know, uh, little, uh, two years, three years old, uh, they are now in their 20s. And to my mind, whilst previously they were all quite normal uh, children which would have grown up uh, like normal children, working-class kids in Britain, Uh, they are, to my mind now, uh, to a substantial degree, uh, changed in their behavioral uh, attitudes, which uh, I'm quite sure, because I watched many of these programs, and I found them terrific. But uh, interesting was, all these programs were actually working on the recategorization of uh, the... um, uh, DSM uh, categories, at that time, for instance, homosexuality was also not, not, uh, no longer in it, and uh, which is now, uh, of course, uh, became uh, gradually, via these children programs, uh, very much uh, propaganda uh, for uh, homosexuality, and now I see, for instance, amongst this uh, group of children, is about 50 percent uh, girls also? So I think, uh, who I think have, I just... uh, turned homosexual as a result. Uh, I think uh, so, I'm not critical uh, uh, of homosexuality, but I notice whether it's the propaganda effect of recategorization, which is in the semiotic uh, realm of research, which usually is forgotten.
0: So I'd like to thank you for that question um, and comment. I mean, I think it reminds us that not all children are growing up in families. Some children. Are growing up on the streets in very um, stressful, unusual um, conditions. And I think they're often the most disadvantaged because they don't have parents and carers to bring them to treatment or to think about the changes that might be occurring. Um, Another question. We just have a lady here and then a gentleman at the back.
1: Two microphones. Mm Okay. Hi. Um, um, What was I going to ask? Yeah, so, okay, basically, um, you know, you you guys have all made some really valid points um, in, um, you know, kind of trying to move away or making classification more flexible by using a more multidisciplinary approach and trying to get away from kind of Cartesian dualism to avoid fatalism and so forth. And I think those are all really great arguments in trying to reduce stigma and mental health generally and trying to, you know, improve conditions for people with mental health problems. But I was just wondering where kind of the agency of the service user comes into play in your arguments and whether you could talk a little bit about that. Just kind the of like agency how of? The agency of the service user, so the person who has the mental health problem, yeah. and just kind of a little bit more about maybe how they might negotiate their diagnosis mm-hmm. um, and so forth. So, I mean, I think
0: that's a really, really pertinent question just at the moment in the sense that the role of, of children and adolescents in, in thinking about their own treatment and being more informed is, is something which is quite high up in the political agenda that not only just adult service users but children as well should be informed and more actively engaged as an agent um, is that your experience, Emily?
2: I, I think it's it's very much our experience. So um, we have a policy in in our services that when we're discussing. Um, diagnosis and treatment planning we try if at all appropriate to involve the young person we do have to make a decision about at what age do we do that if it's a five-year-old it probably doesn't make sense but if they're in the latter half of primary school then you do want to engage them in a way that is, makes sense for them and children will know if they're having difficulties so framing the, dif- you know, the difficulties they have every day I don't have friends. Why, why do you think that is? is? because you get grumpy with other children or can't sit still and what, whatever it may be. So contextualizing in a way that helps them. And that's really important because what we find is if we don't um, engage children as early as um, we can, they vote with their feet in relation to treatment as soon as they can. Um, so if we don't talk to children about why do we think certain... Um, interventions might be helpful, and are they achieving goals that they want? Um, as soon as they can stop coming for appointments or taking their tablets, they will do so. One of the interesting areas of research that we've started doing is trying to under is looking at uh, patient-selected um, outcome measures. So it's what do children actually want to be different? And this is a really this is a sort of um, Almost a revolution in how we think about things. When when I started in in psychiatry, even when I'm undertaking trials, we try to for example, if I'm looking at at ADHD, I'm trying to reduce ADHD symptoms, make the child less overactive, less impulsive, able to concentrate more. But if you ask the child what do they want, they'll say, I want friends. I want my parents to stop shouting at me. I want to remember to bring my homework in. Those are the outcomes they want. And actually you know, engaging around um, those kinds of issues with children as soon as is feasible really... Um, it, well, it's essential and it helps with adherence to treatment.
1: Yeah, well, I think the increased awareness of children's agency is is happening across the board and the whole of the child, children's rights agenda is based on the idea that children are human beings rather than objects. Uh, and in child protection there is, I think with very little success, well, inadequate success so far, but uh, uh, certainly more attention being given to making them active participants in the whole process of, of investigating what is happening to them and of understanding what it feels like to them and what they would like to see happen. Uh, there's a lovely quote from a judge about um, a child as a person, not an object of concern. Uh, and I think the trouble is, for adults, it's much easier to treat them as objects that you can then try and solve, rather than to take the time to try and help them understand or for you to try and understand what they're saying to you um, because it's it takes more effort than just asking their mum um, but it, I think it's it's a very very positive change that is happening slowly right across the board
0: I'm wondering Rachel, I mean I'm familiar with clinical services now, typically there's a young person um, often on the panel in, in selecting staff and guiding policy um, Do DSM ever ask children about what they want or feel in arriving at their decisions? Is that, or are they still rather an encapsulated (laughs) psychiatric specialism that really don't think about that kind of level of influence?
3: So with the DSM, so that there is increasing pressure for service users or patients to have more involvement. Um, This time around, they had one patient representative on all their committees like amongst hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, they also, with the dra- when the drafts were put on the website, that was available for anyone to make comments, and they did get thousands and thousands of comments from people, uh, which they say they've considered very carefully. Um, <laughs> but it's quite
0: striking um, that there wasn't a single child formally involved. In
3: well, children, anyone who could access the web
0: yeah.
3: could mm-hmm. send in comments. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, think it's, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's surprising how little involvement... Mm-hmm. Adult service users, let alone children.
2: Had.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we've got time, probably, for a couple of questions. Um, so we've got um, a gentleman here. And uh...
7: hi. Um, several members of the panel raised uh, some legi- legitimate concerns about the cuts and how they can affect uh, how they can affect people. Um, I was wondering whether any of you know of any examples of uh, action that is being taken or has been taken to try to challenge, for example, the cuts, or anything else that you feel uh, uh, in wider society that is going against the good work you're trying to do. So
0: in a way, are there things...
7: So, So any, basically... Any ways that uh, any of the panel members, either directly, personally, or they've heard about that um, collective action or wh- wh- where you can apply pressure to, uh, the, for example, the political system yeah. or, or any other area? Really?
0: Because I think the reality is that cuts are happening and children's services are often at the front mm. line about because they don't have a voice. But... Do any of you feel that there are influences? Well, um, that? Th-
1: this is where I see neuroscience being used for a good aim, aim uh, but, but inappropriately. So, I, Graham Allen, in his report to the government of, of putting the CT scan on the cover, was stressing the argument that you should invest in services for families while children are young, because otherwise they're scarred for life. Um, so, I mean, it, 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 for me, it, it does create the dilemma, as you know, if he, if he means. If he's trying to achieve a good goal, should he be allowed to get away with overstating the science?
0: <laughs> Do the ends justify the means? Yes. In other words. <laughs> um, I mean, my experience is that there's some very strong charitable institutions like Kids' Company and others who are really advocating for children who don't have a voice, and, and some of those charities have very um, good influence, I think, on policymakers. And, and there's been the recent campaign, for example, of gangs in London that Kids Company have been helping to lead, which I, I think is an example of where policymakers can't just step back and forget about things because these issues are brought to light by people who really are advocating on behalf of the children. So we've just got time for one very short question before it brings us to the close. I'll make it very short. Right.
1: Um, it, it extends from what you just said. Does the end justify the means as a frontline social worker for 15 years? I've seen an enormous increase in assessments being made on children? Does the panel think that those assessments in themselves from the various different bodies can be damaging on children? And have we made guinea pigs out of our children? I
0: I think that's a really good question. So Mm -hmm. is there something just about the process of diagnosis or assessment um, that may be problematic or damaging?
1: I think certainly um, for a lot of children who get into children's social care, they go through the Experience of being assessed, their hopes are raised that something might change and then nothing does happen. So I think you're right that there will be, for a lot of children, the experience brings no benefit but potentially has dispirited them, and it may make them less willing to ask for help in the future. So it has an accumulative effect.
0: What's your experience, Emily, from a clinical context?
2: Um, of course, it certainly can be damaging in, in lots of ways. We've h- highlighted the idea of locating the problems in the child when it may be part of a more complex system, and the whole process of assessing the child can inadvertently be confirming that. I, I have to say that you know that is a really important caveat and something we all need to be very alert to, I'm more worried about the children that aren't getting assessment than the ones that are. It's not that it's not um, potentially damaging, but in mental health, it's more about the lack of access that's a difficulty than children who are getting over-assessed.
0: Thank you, um, Emily. And I'd just like to um, thank all of the panel. I'm sure you'll join us in thanking them for their contributions this evening. (laughs)